Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, here we go with another podcast. And Rob, we've got a special guest on the line for this podcast. The first time we're going to try this. And on the line from Kamloops is Shane Woodford, News Director at Radio NL. Hello, Shane. Hey, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Welcome to the podcast. What do you want to yeah, kick it cheers. off with, Rob? Yeah, well, first off, Shane, you've been a mainstay in BC politics uh, for a long time covering it. You're heading off soon to Denmark, right? Just tell us a bit <laughs> about uh, the next journey for you. Yeah, um, this is happening. For, I actually just came back from Denmark, uh, moved to the, my wife and my, my kid over there. Um, so I'm finishing up with Radio NL and then uh, leaving for Denmark at the end of the month. So the wife was offered a pretty cool opportunity and we... Uh, we danced around it and and uh, made a made a difficult decision to to go to Denmark and ultimately, guy, it was life experience and a chance for my my wife's half Danish and my kid holds a passport, so um, a chance to have a life experience and to have little Henrik, you know, um, learn some Danish and develop a relationship with this country that's going to be a part of his life. Now, that's what won us over. But to be honest with you, I'm. I mean, you guys know me. I I love doing this job. I, I love being a part of the political scene in this province. So uh, it's not an easy thing to you know put that down or, or to stop doing that so i'm struggling a bit with that yeah are you gonna do you think you'll miss the wacky world of bc politics i mean it's never oh, dull, absolutely right? <laughs> i will totally miss it i love covering this stuff i always have it's always been what i wanted to do and uh it's yeah i'm gonna miss it i'm, I'm gonna miss it horribly yeah well you brought a unique perspective because you started um and you know you kind of cut your teeth covering politics in metro vancouver i know from your time at uh, CKNW, and now you're yeah. up in Kamloops with a slightly different perch, and that's kind of one of the the perspectives we're hoping you bring to the podcast today. Because yeah. you know everyone says, "Oh, Smitty and Shaw down there in the bubble, the yeah. bubble of Victoria, <laughs> they don't know what's going on in the real world." Yeah. So I imagine it looks a little different. Uh, but you're you're talking to all the same people but we are, but uh, yeah. maybe a slightly different take on what's happening. It's, so it's actually kind of funny, Rob. But I actually started in NL. NL was my first full time okay. gig. Uh, out of school. I started CBC Vancouver part-time and then uh, Radio NL was the first full-time gig. So I actually began covering politics at, in Kamloops and then kind of built on that with my five years at CKNW before coming back here. Right. So, so you're back home yeah. and then you're going to your new home. Yeah. <laughs> well, land did, of Denmark. We appreciate you coming on today. and uh, Yeah. We'll, they really uh, love hot dogs in Denmark, by the way. <laughs> All right. So we're going to mine you for every last ounce of BC political insight before you go. <laughs> And one, yeah. of, one of our first topics here, we were thinking about talking a bit about gas prices. And Smitty and I have been waxing on this subject for weeks now as gas prices were at historic highs, mainly, you know, in Metro Vancouver and uh, Metro Victoria. But gas prices have gone down 20, 30 cents uh, in the lower yeah. mainland in the last week or so. I, I noticed one of your tweets, Shane, and I'll just let you sort of expand on it. But the idea of what do you think the political implications are for 
you know, Premier John Horgan's government, who was under fire for gas prices being so high as if the government was the problem. And now they're back down 20, 30 cents. What, yeah. what implications are there for the government there, do you think? Well, listen, let's get this on the table right away. I think this whole – the politicizing of the gas prices issue, in my perspective, is stupid. It's cheap politics. It's it's just dumb. It doesn't make any sense. Now, I'll put the one caveat in there. As you guys know, Premier John Horgan said uh, or teased and has for two summers in a row now, there's some kind of relief. We're, we're going to look at this. We're going to monitor this. We might bring in some kind of relief. So he, he painted himself in a bit of a corner there. So with that caveat in place, to blame John Horgan for, for sky-high gas prices is patently ridiculous. The BC Liberals plastered social media with and and to some extent, the roadways and billboards and stuff, all trying to just put the price of gas on John Horgan. And I, mysteriously enough, guys, haven't seen one thank you John Horgan tweet for the drop in prices. <laughs> so, um, you know, to me, the drop in prices underscores the stupidity of the argument, pure and simple. It was interesting to see some NDPers on social media, Shane, chime in and say, well, when are we going to start seeing the congratulations for Horgan on, on gas prices going down? Yeah. But yeah, there is a lot of politics going on here, clearly. And I wonder if the liberals who have been fretting and complaining about high gas prices, when they see the price of gas go down significant, like significantly like we've seen in the last couple of weeks, if they're secretly going, oh, Darn it. This is not what we wanted to see. We wanted to see prices go up. This is one of the ironies of, of these yeah. kind of topsy-turvy politics is at the same time they're out there saying that they want they want lower gas prices. I think they secretly want prices to go up so they can yeah. continue to pin it on Horgan. Well, how many tweets have you seen from the liberals or a liberal MLA on gas prices in the last week? Yeah, not many. <laughs> not many. Yeah, yeah. Point to case in point right there. So what do you think it does to this? Uh, gas review by the Utilities Commission, which already has one hand tied behind its back because it can't analyze government taxes, it can't analyze future pipelines, it can't determine or won't determine whether there's price gouging. Uh, does this thing just become a, a non-issue now, or should we still watch out for it, or what do you make well, of it? I think it's an issue without a doubt. And it, I mean, the reason it works politically is because it's a populist issue, right? Everybody who fills up their gas tank looks at the price and, and has a visceral reaction. Um, my complaint is with the intelligence of the argument politically. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, let's, let's face facts here. In my lifetime, gas has gone up all the time. It's never gone down. It's always increased. Uh, as far as the BCUC review, I'm curious to see what it results in. I mean, there has been some, you know, trimming of its mandate, but, uh, I'm, I'm more curious to see what it does as far as hauling oil and gas executives in front and, say, and asking them questions. What, what it results in or what options it has, I'm I'm baffled by. I don't know what tools the province might have to actually, you know, lower gas prices. It hasn't come to fruition in any other jurisdiction in North America that I'm aware of. No, I mean, maybe we end up talking about the, the, the New Brunswick model of setting a gas price cap per week. But sure. the evidence on that isn't really conclusive whether that makes yeah. a difference or not. So outside yeah. of that, nobody has really managed to figure it out. Yeah, and prices in, prices in New Brunswick haven't decreased. No. No. <laughs> the only thing that I would say about Horgan and gas prices, and I, I take your point, Shane, that it, maybe it's unfair to, obviously you can't pin the entire price of a liter of gas on, on Horgan's policies, but when they did that trimming of the mandate, as you mentioned, for this inquiry, one of the things that we're hearing from the inquiry commissioner now is 
they will likely, and this is a scoop that Rob that Rob had, they will likely not examine the potential impact of an expanded Trans Mountain pipeline on gas prices. And to me, that was yeah. very disappointing because there's there's a lot of people out there that make the argument that, well, if you want cheaper gas prices, you should build this pipeline. In fact, the the government of Alberta is is advertising all over British Columbia right now, making that argument. I would have been intrigued and, and interested to see this inquiry take a close look at that concept. And to me, it was like I, I didn't think they were going to go there because why would a provincial inquiry examine the potential benefits of a pipeline project that John Horgan opposes? So in some ways, yeah. I was not surprised to see this commissioner say they will likely not look at that. And to me, that just makes this inquiry look political, too. I mean, certainly the liberals have been very political on this, but Horgan's playing a little politics on it, too, don't you think? For sure. But then the reality of the Trans Mountain Pipeline is there's no guarantee of a flow of refined products. I mean, they lease the pipeline to oil and gas companies in the oil sands, uh, and there's no guarantee that the amount of refined gasoline flowing into the lower mainland could be 1% or 99%. I mean, I get the argument, and, and there's some credence to it, I think it's one of those things, though, that has been twisted a little bit and overrepresented for political purposes. Um, maybe, and I think the premier has even mentioned this that maybe part of the new pipeline, you try and get some kind of a mandate to say, okay, uh, we're going to build a pipeline and we're going to have 30% refined product to go into the lower mainland to try and increase the supply. They maybe they could do it that way, but uh, right now there's no guarantee of any refined product in that pipeline. Yeah, it's certainly not a question that. The federal government's cleared up for us either because no. theoretically, <laughs> they're the ones who could tell us if you twin this pipeline, which they own, can you control the flow in it to allow for more refined gasoline or is it all locked up in contracts and the National Energy Board and this red tape bureaucratic nightmare that will never allow for it to happen? But you don't you don't hear Ottawa clearing that up either. And it would be great if there was a utilities commission review that kind of laid the facts on the table and For got sure. through the spinning of BC, Alberta, and Ottawa. But I don't even know if with the freest mandate possible, you know, a commission could do that anyway. So we are all and destined would... in, in some ways to be a bit dumber when it comes to the, the pipeline and gas debate because there's <laughs> very powerful forces with large voices spinning us in all directions. No, absolutely. And I, I, I concur with you on, on providing some truth and clarity in that. And it would have been interesting to see what BCUC might have done there. I, although I think it would have added to the to their mandate significantly and probably impacted the timeline. Uh, sticking in the real world here, outside of the bubble from Victoria, the forestry sector is just in a in a crisis right now. And you're, uh, you're hmm. closer to that on the ground in Kamloops, Shane. I know there's been some uh, mill curtailments and closures and uh, crown, you know, license uh, timber issues that are proving to be maybe the first real test for the NDP government's uh, forestry powers that it's given themselves in the public good. Yeah, um, Bill 22. What are you making of the situation from Kamloops? Do you feel any kind of political pressure on, on the Horgan government to do something? Is there anything that people are proposing when you're talking to, to mill workers and and the companies themselves that the government should be doing, or what's your take of the situation right now? Well, number one, I mean, let's keep let's keep this first and foremost for for the communities uh, that are impacted. It's devastating. Like there's no there's no way around that. Uh, 170 workers and their families are gonna are gonna deal with unemployment next month in Vavenby. 160 workers are gonna deal with uh, unemployment over some kind of a timeline with the indefinite suspension of the Norboard 
uh, sawmill in Hunter Mile House. For communities like Vavenby and Clearwater, which is probably the largest community nearby, and for for Hunter Mile House, I mean that is that is flat out devastating. I mean that's a huge economic hit. Um, as far as the political price, it's a little more unclear because you got to keep in mind that these are BC Liberal ridings, right? And these are these are smaller areas. If this was an economy of scale crisis unfolding in a Victoria or a Vancouver. Uh, with a huge population and there was like a major, major economic meltdown, I think it may uh, cause more of a reaction or more of a, a speedy response from, from the province. But I mean, at the end of the day, there's two reasons. Number one, you have uh, a compromised timber supply. There's just not enough fiber out there. Number two, what fiber there is out there is extremely expensive to get. So they have soaring costs and the supply is choking off and that's creating a crisis. What the province is going to do about it is unclear. They've started this forest renewal process. Uh, Horgan saying, listen, we're not going to do a one size fits all. We're going to go into each tenure area and, and try and determine, you know, what in that area works as far as renewing the forest and trees. So there's something that works for each area. That process, though, is very much in its infancy. I talked to uh, Forest Minister Doug Donaldson this morning, in fact, uh, and he basically said, listen, there's going to be a tough transition here. Uh, solutions aren't going to happen overnight. And I think there's some truth to that. As a matter of fact, I mean, let's in the last three weeks alone, guys, there's been a, a curtailment of the sawmill in Merritt. Merritt lost the Toco Mill a year or two ago. That was devastating for the community. And now their only other mill is seeing a big cutback in shifts. Sawmill closure in Vavenby by Canfork. Canfork curtailing its operations province-wide. And now the Norboard uh, indefinite takedown of its mill in 100 Mile House. And I can tell you right now, with a guarantee, you're going to see more of that probably sooner than later. What the province is going to do about it, I think, is a bit of a mystery. I mean, the forestry thing has, has plagued the province for decades, as you guys know. The, the, the politics of it is is interesting to me, Shane, because you've got Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson trying to make this political issue against the NDP. But Basically saying that this downturn is, he can't really blame it on anything the NDP has necessarily done, and he's focusing more on what they're not doing. So he's been consistently criticizing Horgan and the NDP government for not doing enough to intervene or to help or to do something uh, to reverse this. I mean, you're, from your perspective in the interior there, especially in, a, in such a bellwether riding there in, in Kamloops, is, is, is that getting any traction, do you think? Like, are people... Are people looking at this trouble in the forest industry and blaming the NDP for it in any way? That's tough to say. I mean, obviously, people who are losing their jobs aren't going to be happy with the government of the day, uh, for sure. Um, but again, we're in ridings that are, that are you know, in, in Kamloops, uh, south and north. North is, is the one affected in the case of Avonby. Uh, in, in the Caribou, south and north, I mean, those are... Those are all being held by the liberals. I mean, if they aren't going to topple the government of the day, no matter how, you know, a community like Bavenby or 100 Mile House votes. Um, I think that the forest industry story politically has yet to play out because of this renewal process, because the Horgan government really hasn't said, here's our plan to do whatever. And then it's tested in, in the world of reality. Um, the one political thing that I think we need to keep an eye on out of Bill 22 is the power that Doug Donaldson now has to veto the sale of uh, of timber tenure rights. Uh, and in the case of the Canfor mill in, in Vavenby, already in, in the closure of that mill, um, they're offering to sell those timber rights to Interfor for $60 million. The community up there, I talked to the mayor yesterday, 
uh, is extremely alarmed by that. They do not want that deal to go through. They want it slowed down, and they're relying on Bill 22 to provide them some muscle. But at the end of the day, that sale will land on Doug Donaldson's desk, and he will have the power to say, no, we're not doing that. That will be interesting. And yet, the you know one of the rationales for those timber swaps has always been that um, it's kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge by the forest companies to, you know, boost one mill's timber supply at the expense of another so that in another community the reverse can happen. And in this case, I guess it would be the Adams Lake uh, mill that would be the one that would benefit. And, and it's so, made out of Culture and Merits put out now in Bavenby. The community looks at potentially the loss of their local supply of timber uh, and goes, what, what the hell is going on? We can't do that. And, and yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a level of, you know, anger and resentment about that and and that's a pretty common part of the of the sawmill closure refrain that we've seen play out time and time and time again what do you what do you i mean you know you can't pin blame i think at this point on on the ndp for a a lack of fiber supply which we all knew was coming because of the pine beetle wood that is now no longer harvestable but at the same time there's three things and you touched on one that the ndp are kind of doing right now one is giving themselves this power to veto the the crown tenure li- uh, licenses when they come up for um, transfer in this way. The other is they're going to raise stumpage fees. And then the third is the NDP has this um, fee in lieu of, uh, of for raw log exports that it because it, you know, generally doesn't like that practice. And that's still something that they're, <laughs> yeah. that they're moving towards. And are those things the right time for, you know, the NDP government to proceed on given the chaos in the industry and, and the effects that are, do you see any hesitation from Doug Donaldson when you talk to him about proceeding with their plans, given all of these mill closures that everyone kind of knew was going to happen, but still must sting quite a bit for the government? No, in fact, as I said, he told me today that there's going to be a tough transition and, and solutions aren't going to happen overnight. Uh, if he's feeling any heat, he didn't let, he didn't let you know me know that in, in chatting with him today. Hmm. I think, I mean, back to Smitty's question about political implications. I mean, I think one thing that helps politically for the NDP is that this crisis has been unfolding for years. You know, it's not like the forest industry was humming along and it was really, really awesome. And then two years ago when the NDP took power, the whole thing tanked, right? Like they've been, they've been kicked around for years. So I think that they're, I mean, they're used to being mad at any government of the day, right? So I I don't think the NDP are going to, you know, they'll, they'll take some blame because they're the, they're the government right now. But I don't think that this is like, you know, an NDP specific issue until they table solutions and try and fix it. And that's tested again on the world of reality, whether that works or not. Yeah. Although, you know, they they are opening themselves up to a little bit of blame by wanting to have this veto right on the on the crown land licenses. So what if the NDP yeah. does veto this Vavenby deal and, you know, Adams Lake and the others are upset and you see more closures or what if they say okay and there's protests in the community for allowing like in some ways by inserting themselves into that process they have then opened themselves up for blame that they otherwise might not have had to take and or or what if they buy it back themselves remember the i think it was in the early 2000s if memory serves the liberal government of the day did that they bought back all the timber licenses and then tried to reorganize maybe to first nations groups or something like that yeah and the first nations aspect of it's a whole other but they'll have a voice in the consultations as well. Yeah, it'll be, well, with, what, 10 to 12 more uh, mill closures expected over the next decade, uh, we're going to be talking quite a bit about that. I can't help but feel, you know, like John Horgan at the last Truck Loggers Association was talking about forestry as a 
you know, a sunrise industry. And I'm, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't, those words don't make a lot of sense given everyone kind of seemed to know that this was going to happen. But, uh, yeah, as, it's just, it, it's so called like the pine beetle thing was devastating. Yeah. The last couple of wildfire seasons, devast, like it's just this industry simply cannot catch a break. Yeah. Uh, will it, I mean, it's such a big one for the province. The people are so fond of it because it is a foundational industry for beasts. But I think the sun is set on the industry to some degree. It's not going to be the huge driving force in this province that it was years ago. What it will be in the future, I don't know. But I don't think it's going to be elite economically the way it has been in, in years past. Uh, Shane, sketch out for us how you kind of view the NDP government at its two-year mark. Smitty and I in past podcasts have talked a bit about um, the the moderation that they have shown. We We think, you know, our kind of take is that they've very smartly not... Uh, allowed themselves to drift into the crazy left-wing socialist pro-union big spending deficit budget NDP governments of the 90s that kind of knee-jerk reaction and they've actually moderated themselves on quite a few things they're even they're even fighting with the teachers union my goodness <laughs> yeah what yeah, do you that's... what do you make of all that at the kind of halfway point of what might be a a full four-year mandate well uh i see it two ways number one uh when you have a long government like the liberals did 16 years you build up a lot of skeletons in the closet and i think that the last handful of years under liberals they're really tone deaf on some serious issues and, and the housing crisis uh leaps out at me as one of the biggest ones and when you come off of that it's easy or not easy but what i think the ndp has done well is they've they've actually acted on some of the issues that have gone over well with the public money laundering uh, they've done stuff on the housing crisis where I think the people have, have finally gone, oh, my God, thankfully, somebody's doing something. Uh, I think that in contrast with the last few years of liberals, they've, in comparison, they've done some good things. I think where they've gone off the rails is in the processes of how they've rolled out some things, the speculation tax. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you, I mean, the housing thing is huge. I don't care where you vote. If you're in Metro Vancouver or Southern Vancouver Island, you are pissed about the housing crisis over the last few years. It's just, it, it's something that impacts you daily. And to see a government act on it, on one side you're thankful, but then you look at how they did the speculation tax and they almost caused more problems than they needed to uh, from the name of the tax right on down to how they rolled it out. I mean, you guys have seen tax policy created. It was bizarre how that one went. Uh, the other one where I think they're really wading into the weeds of their detriment is, the, is opposing the Trans Mountain Pipeline which was great campaign rhetoric, but in reality, it has really not served them well. And uh, I am baffled as to how they're going to appeal um, this decision uh, based on the judgment, uh, the court judgment. It was just devastating. I don't know how I don't know how you say, OK, this is why we're appealing. I'm fascinated to see how they're going to do that. But I think they I think on that issue, they need to, to recognize the writing on the wall and just stand down. And on that, trend, them well. on that Trans Mountain Pipeline project. Shane, this is one that could really be roaring back to life here maybe sooner than people realize because there has been some reports that the Justin Trudeau cabinet uh, could be making a decision about whether to approve the pipeline again, which they likely will, and that could happen at a cabinet meeting next week. So you yeah. could potentially see the Justin Trudeau government give the green light to this pipeline once again, maybe even start to see shovels in the ground pretty soon. At the same time, you've got a really, I think, fascinating situation going on behind the scenes with the coalition of First Nations looking to buy uh, a majority stake in the project. So it would sort of hand Trudeau an interesting talking point to go out there and defend this project and say, 
not only is it going to be great for the economy and great and create jobs and, and create tax revenue, but look who owns it now, First Nations. So I'm going to make this part of my reconciliation agenda as well. So I think that's kind of what Trudeau maybe has up his sleeve, and that might be another tricky spot for Horgan. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I talked to Energy and Mines Minister Michelle Mongol on Monday and just threw the question at her about, okay, uh, if we get an approval in the Trans Mountain Pipeline next week, will your government sort of stand down its opposition and allow construction to proceed? And boy, oh boy, I mean, she stuttered and stammered <laughs> and danced around answering that question like you would not believe. But uh, I think I think the pipeline is going to get built. I think it should get built. And I think that the I think that the government needs to get out of the way now. I think they're going to pay a political price on that. But if anything they're doing right now, I think that that's their biggest political risk. And yet, I mean, it's hard to imagine the government backing down from the Supreme Court of Canada appeal. The way that David Eby and Horgan framed it after that, uh, the decision here in BC and the, the Court of Appeal on their own legislation that was ruled unconstitutional. I mean, they basically described it as one court's opinion. Uh, that's why we've always wanted to take this to the Supreme Court of Canada. I agree with you, Shane. I'm not sure how they structure an appeal that was so devastatingly i can't even say that correctly but it it, it nailed them. it <laughs> nailed dunk, it right? nailed them yeah. hard you yeah. know the bc court of appeal and i but there's, i'm not there's sure how certain, they how they take that forward there's a certain irony to that though remember how much they bashed the previous liberal government for its court battle against teachers mm-hmm. and they i think the liberal government is was in much the same position they were in a fight they couldn't win they kept waging it because they didn't know any other way they were too stubborn to stand down and they got handed an absolutely embarrassing Supreme Court of Canada decision. I've never seen a decision like it. It took, what, like seven minutes? And I think there's the potential here for the exact same scenario to play out in the Trans Mountain Pipeline with the John Horgan government. I'm not sure that they're going to take very long to look at this thing and go, yeah, good luck. Uh, I mean, even again, if, I, even if the Supreme, that's assuming the Supreme Court of Canada decides even to hear the case, they might, they might, I believe, turn. I think they have to, Smitty. I think that, the, I think that they're compelled to. Because it's a constitutional matter, my understanding is that they have to hear it. Mm. I think that they're just going to take about five minutes, though. Overall, though, Shane, and I think you're in such an interesting position there in Kamloops, which has historically been regarded as as one of the bellwether parts of the province that sort of the way people thinking there is is largely kind of the way that the province is going in, in some regards. Overall, I think that this government uh, is sitting pretty good two years in. I mean... To, to see a, a premier and a government that's that's gone along two years in when you think like the bloom would be off the rose right now, the honeymoon would be over. Certainly the kind of the going down a little bit in the in some opinion polls, but that's to be expected with the government's been in power for a while. Horgan, I think, has had a few little bumps in the road, but has avoided a lot of major kind of scandals. I think Horgan's performance has exceeded a lot of expectations. He's got very strong performances out of key cabinet ministers like Eby. And yep. I think that the Liberals, by comparison, I don't think Wilkinson has been a real effective Liberal leader in opposition. And the Liberals are still struggling to, to find some kind of wedge issue to fight against this government, like gas prices or whatever. But overall, though, do you think this government, this government's got to be pretty happy where they are right now? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think that uh, things, I mean, you think about the formation of this government, all of the speculation about how long it would last. I remember uh, talking to political scientists and stuff in, in the aftermath of the formation of the government. They're, oh, 18 months. Governments like this only last 18 months. Uh, and quite frankly, I mean, I think we can put that to bed. I think we're going to have a scheduled election in October of 2021. Uh, it's going to go the distance. 
Um, I think John Horgan has done really well as premier from an every man perspective. Like we have to remember how mad people were at Christy Clark. She just came across as disingenuous and always in the, always in the sort of, uh, always in the box and spinning stuff. Um, John Horgan, to his credit, is like an ordinary guy and he comes across like an ordinary guy. He comes across as a genuine guy. Uh, I think that that has helped this government and him personally out a lot. Andrew Wilkinson's a really nice guy. I like Andrew. Um, but he can, he has real trouble sort of connecting. And even when you know he's trying to connect, he, he can sometimes sound kind of lofty and, and a little arrogant. And I don't know how he gets over that. Um, and I think the liberals as a whole kind of remind me of the NDP. Uh, before they caught their stride in opposition, where they were just scrambling to find something that sticks and not looking too good doing it. But um, that could change, I suppose, that there's an issue that boils somewhere out of the blue that changes their tone or, or hands them a gift. But uh, right now, I just think they lack direction and, and an issue of substance to really hammer this government on. You talk to a lot of the cabinet ministers, Shane. Who's your top performers and your kind of the weakest links right now in the, in the Horgan cabinet, do you think? Well, I think that it's pretty, that's a pretty easy one. You got Mike Farnworth, uh, you got, uh, David Eby, you got Carol James, you got Adrian Dix. I mean, those are the, those are the core. Um, they're, they're your stalwarts. I, I loved your column, by the way, Rob, about, and, uh, I think you did a sort of an assessment on it about a few months ago. And you mentioned how people have just stopped asking Adrian Dix questions in question period because he's, <laughs> he just knows so much about his own file. Um, then you get it further into the weeds. I think Claire Trevena really struggles as transportation minister. Um, Michelle Mungal as energy minister is a little stronger, but she can still struggle uh, on some issues. Um, George Heyman, George Heyman's interesting. As an environment minister, he's, I don't want to say invisible, but he's hes a lot quieter than environment ministers of the past. I mean, yeah, Trans Mountain and stuff. But when was the last time George Heyman did a, a dynamic press conference or a one-on-one interview on something of substance? I, you know, mm-hmm. he's been fairly, fairly quiet. Um, I don't know about their bench strength. I think they they got some interesting people on their bench. Rap Kalon's an interesting guy. Uh, I'd be interested to see him take a more prominent role. I think he would kind of carry some weight for the NDP. So I, I, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty aligned with what you guys probably think about sort of the core of, of good, solid cabinet ministers, and then some other ones that are a little little more out in the weeds yeah it'll be interesting to see if there is a cabinet shuffle at this halfway mark you know christy clark took the view that why shuffle for the sake of shuffling you know let's uh let's get some stability let's keep the same people in the same positions gordon campbell just shuffled you know as just (laughs) whenever something was going on boom cabinet shuffle and off he would go so i'm not sure i think horgan when we asked him that at the end of the kind of session he sort of said not not in the immediate future i'm not sure if that's there's got to be some – I think the Clark government was hindered in the end by having some of the wrong people in the wrong positions. Mike yeah. DeYoung should not have been finance minister when you turned from being frugal to trying to spend some of that money. And I wonder if the Horgan government could benefit from just a little bit of a refresh here and there without feeling like they're giving their enemies some trophies by shuffling some of the – struggling ministers out because you never know in a different portfolio maybe they do they do much better what do you think smitty is there a shuffle necessary uh i'm not sure about a shuffle but i would say that the two key people are carol james and david eby with carol james you've got a minister who is very experienced unflappable 
and has balanced the budget. And I, I think this is critical that this government has not gone crazy on spending. I think if they had come in with a, a strong economy and a whole bunch of balanced budgets in a row, and then they all of a sudden said, we're going to run up big honking deficits like Adrian Dix was indicating he wanted to do at one point when he was the party leader. I think that would have been a crucial error. So they have yeah. kept the budget balanced. And I think she has sort of earned some uh, some stripes as as a, as a competent finance minister. So I think she's critical. And the other one, I think, is E.B., who is just um, he, he's a just a cold blooded killer, this guy politically. I mean, he just <laughs> he just swings a political wrecking ball and he'll. He can he can he can destroy his opponent without batting an eye. And this money laundering thing, he's got a tiger by the tail there and he's inflicted a whole bunch of damage on the liberals with it. And when they start this public inquiry into money laundering, maybe in the fall, uh, I think it's going to inflict even more. So I think those two key cap, those two two cabinet ministers and Horgan himself, who I I think has exceeded a lot of expectations, are sort of the triumvirate there that are that is really super strong for this government. Yeah, it's amazing way, to yeah. to talk to Horgan. I know you have quite a bit, uh, Shane. He's he used to be quick to rise to the bait if he didn't like the form of a question or yeah. the the criticism that that someone was suggesting of him. Uh, you talk to him probably just as much as we do because he's a he's a regular caller into your station. Uh, are you, do you ever catch him off guard? He seems to be he can hold forty minute scrums with us down here. And handle yeah. every single question you can throw at him. Is that the same when you're talking to my, him? My perception of John Horgan is he has grown into the role of premier. He relishes it. Yeah, I mean, there's been some days, obviously, when he's had some rough ones. And you can tell when he's off his game or he's, he's upset about something. But those are, those are rare. I think John Horgan really loves being premier. I think it suits him. I think he relishes it. I think it makes him happy. Uh, and it's pretty obvious. I mean, he comes across as a strong, content confident happy guy as premier um you know and i don't i i think i can't recall a premier ever that sort of you know when the past like you know gordon campbell for example i mean gordon campbell was gordon campbell as premier nice guy uh, calm articulate all that kind of stuff but he didn't change john horgan literally changed uh he had a temper issue he could he could really snap and go uh go off on people and since becoming premier, it's almost like, you know, just that part of him's just gone away. And he just seems just happy with life. And it really shows. Yeah, it's very, it's it. He's the, I called him the minister of defense. You know, he's kind of like the chief, um, you know, a blocker that they have. Anytime an issue comes up, you toss Horgan out there and he just kind of handles it for some of the weaker yeah. performing ministers who've landed themselves in the glue, like yeah. Ginny Sims or Lana Popham or people like that. He's managed to pull them back out and save face for his government. So Christy Clark yeah. had that to a certain extent, but she that, that yeah. turned on her eventually. People people got tired of that. What um, yeah. is there anything else on your mind from up there in, in uh, Kamloops that uh, you feel is resonating with people that maybe we're not kind of picking up on down here in Victoria or – kind of sleeper issues that are out there um, that you're hearing well, from the people. the union agreement uh, on major projects you know the ones that are 500 million dollars and more uh is an issue that sort of i think quietly becoming uh something that the province is going to have to address and we're seeing it here i remember in the in the campaign the john horgan government promised they were going to they were going to four-lane Highway 1 from Kamloops to the Alberta border. And, and by golly, they were going to do it faster than the B.C. Liberals. Well, the truth has played out that things are, are if anything, becoming slower and more delayed. And now we have these uh, union agreements 
Uh, these union mandates and costs are going up on the first stretches of the highway. They're finally proceeding on by quite a significant amount. Um, I think that that's one of the issues we need to keep an eye on as far as an overall political impact. But there is a lot of grumblings here about um, how slow they're taking those particular highway jobs and the impacts on these on these union agreements that the, the premier and cabinet cooked up. So it's the speed of the project, not necessarily the, the cost overruns, which we often focus on down here is whether it's going to add that three or four or seven percent overrun but it's actually yeah, but the, the delays the cost, o- the cost overruns so far are, are nothing to laugh at and we haven't even seen the like um you know the the widening of the highway up here is difficult like it's it's really you got to come up here i don't know if you guys have driven to calgary up to number one at all i know do, do i have to go over the coquihalla or no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i mean you can literally blow and i'm not kidding like hundreds of millions of dollars to four lane what amounts to a kilometer or two of the number one. This is difficult work. And when you apply these union agreements and you see prices going up by, you know, 15, 16, 17%, 20%, um, that's a lot of money on projects that are very, very, very expensive to do. And I think that there's potential here, uh, if the NDP aren't careful, to turn the four laning of the number one into a real boondog. Hmm. Interesting. And, you know, in the Metro Vancouver area, we often are just focused on the Massey Bridge project or the Patello or, well, I guess the Patello is not really the issue, but mostly the Massey Bridge kind of uh, the, the Patello scares. It, the but, Patello uh, scares the hell out of me, by the way. You know, on the union stuff, though, this is another example of where I think Horgan has been very clever and strategic. Like he does come across, like you said, Shane, as the kind of the average guy, like a normal guy, which I think is a, a wonderful skill for him to possess and I, I i don't think it's fake i think it's quite genuine but at the same time behind that kind of appearance in public it, i i think a guy is who's been revealed as a very shrewd politician and on the union stuff i think he's very cleverly kind of walked the, a very fine line and not giving the unions everything they want so when they rewrote the labor code for example the unions did get a few things that they wanted but they didn't get one of the key ones that they did, that they were hoping for, and that was scrapping a secret ballot provision for certifying yeah. a union, which would have made it easier to certify a union. On the teachers, for example, as we mentioned earlier, here he is in a fight with the teachers. I mean, they supported that teachers' union in opposition, and, and now they're in some hardball bargaining with this union, and the teachers' union's not happy about it. I think this is smart of Horgan. He hasn't given everything. Yeah, they got a sweetheart deal on these contracts to build all these public infrastructure projects, but everyone kind of expected that would happen. On some of these other files, the unions have not got what they wanted, and I think that's very deliberate that Horgan wants to present himself as, yeah, he's he's not going to deny his union roots and he's on the side of working people and, and, and organized labor, but he's not giving away the store to them, and I think that's a smart po- political tactic for him. Is it smart political tactic because he has a choice to do it, though, Smitty, or because he's in a place with the formation of this government and green support that he is uh, is forced to compromise? I often wonder about that. Yeah, well, it's the the larger question Smitty and I have asked, too, is uh, is the NDP a moderate government because of the NDP or because the Greens keep poking them and moderating them down? I mean, is it left to their own devices? Would the NDP be going hog wild? in a majority, uh, given the unions everything that they want, knowing that they're, think, they're solid. I don't think so. I think Horgan is a guy who thinks he can win again. I think this is a guy, the way he's governing, is he's looking down the road to another election. And I think he's looking at a you know a relatively weak opposition leader and thinking, you know what, I can beat this guy. I can beat Andrew Wilkinson in a, in a 
debate. I can beat him on a campaign trail and I can win again. And I think that's what Horgan's got in the back of his mind. And I think he's governing accordingly. Yeah, he's got the that moderating influence of the, of the Green Party for sure. But I think in a lot of ways, he's he's got he's got Andrew Weaver wrapped around his finger, too. Like, I, th- I think the deal that they did with the, gr- the Green Party to actually form government was very advantageous to the NDP. And I think I just think Horgan's a lot shrewder and smarter uh, and strategic as a politician that maybe he appears in public. Yeah, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that. By the way, uh, just to reflect back on the highway cost thing we were talking about a minute yeah. ago, I just I just checked my notes on it. So uh, the stretch near Revelstoke I was referring to cost jumped thirty five percent. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that you can't. Uh, I mean, if that is because of CBAs, the government won't survive those kind of cost overruns on on major projects. You could you could get away with three, four, seven percent or something like that, but that's that's an extraordinary. Yeah, that's a big yeah. that's a big overrun. Yeah. yeah, and keep in mind that the province has to eat that, right? Because uh, there is some cost sharing of the federal government, but those are designed that the federal government cost is finite. So yeah, the feds are uh, very whatever smart the cost over, yeah, whatever the cost overrun is, that's coming on us. Yeah. All right. Well, that that about does it for the show. Uh, thanks for coming, Shane. You know, uh, we're gonna miss you covering BC politics. You've done a heck yeah. of a job over the years digging up scoops. So you probably talked to just as many, if not more cabinet ministers and the premier up there on your show than than we do down here so there'll be a big yeah. uh, a big void left on your departure but how can people yeah. how can they kind of follow you going forward tell them a bit about well, how they can reach you or keep track of what I'll, you're doing uh, i'll keep my twitter account active and and my facebook page and stuff like that and, and we'll see I, I don't have anything to do over in denmark so i'm a little nervous about that but uh I'll cook some stuff up. Uh, it's interesting. My sister-in-law, who's in Denmark, uh, is actually a radio journalist with NPR. Uh, so she does some freelance work, and we've uh, we've talked about working together on some stuff. So I'm sure I'm sure it's not a goodbye. It's a see you later. But uh, all honesty, I'm I'm going to get super emotional on the last day here. I'm going to end on a Friday. It'll be the last day of my political show here on Radio NL um, with Keith Vaughn and everybody, and uh, and then I'm going to walk away for hopefully not ever, but. Uh, it's going to be emotional for me. I love this job. I, I love doing what I do. I love covering politics. And it is it is not easy to say, okay, I'm putting this down and I might not pick it up again. Yeah. So, well, it'll you know. still be here if you want to pick it up again. This murky pool <laughs> is available for you to jump into anytime, even from, uh, even from Denmark. Uh, I'm sure you can wait in. We'll have you back on the podcast, get your thoughts from even further away from the, yeah. the bubble at the well, legislature. Thanks. Thanks for the invite, guys. It's uh, it was really cool to come on and uh, anytime. Yeah. Good luck in the future, Shane. Thanks, Mitty. Appreciate it. And uh, if you're listening to the podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow Mike Smith and I on Twitter. Read Mike in the province. Read myself in the Vancouver Sun. We will be back with more political news and analysis uh, next uh, week on the podcast. Yeah. See you then.